Amen. May we ever be learning more and finding out more of the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the Word of God, and I invite you to turn in the Scriptures, if you have a copy of them, to Luke chapter 9, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Let's make a mention there of Port Lincoln being famous for its tuna, and at the end of January they have their national holiday, Australia Day, their kind of Independence Day, if you like, and in Port Lincoln they always have events that are put on for that occasion. And one of the more unusual ones that we learned when we were there was the tuna toss competition. So they would get a 10 kilogram tuna and they would put a handle onto it and then they would use it like a hammer. You know the hammer throw? (laughs) So you would have these just regular people trying to throw this tuna as far as they could and then these almost like semi-professional hammer throwers <laughs> taking up this 10-kilogram tuna and launching it almost into the sea. And it was interesting. In fact, they, the first year we were there was the last year they actually did it with actual tuna. The next year they moved on to a plastic tuna that was equivalent. <laughs> and uh, that's, I think, forever it's been a plastic tuna now for the tuna toss. But uh, it was interesting to see. So they throw this frozen tuna, and then after, I don't know how many throws, it was kind of falling apart. They'd have to get another tuna (laughs) and do the same all over again until the competition was over. But interesting things you see across the world. And it was was sponsored at that time by John West, the great uh, tuna manufacturing company. I don't know if it is anymore, but uh, interesting. Well... I guess it's somewhat relevant tonight because we have fish featuring in our passage. Luke chapter 9, that wasn't intentional at all. (laughs) Um, We're going to be reading the Word of God from verse 10. Luke chapter 9, verse 10. And we want to read this very familiar to those who have been in the church for any length of time. Those of you brought up in the church and taught the things of God, you'll, you'll know this narrative as recorded for us here. So let's hear the word of the Lord. May its familiarity not be lost on us. And may the Lord give us fresh manna for our souls tonight as we consider his word. Luke chapter 9, verse 10. And the apostles, when they returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. And he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place." And he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. And they were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so, and made them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fishes. Looking up to heaven, he blessed them and brake 
and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. And there was taken up of fragments that remained to them twelve baskets. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let us all pray. Let's seek the Lord afresh and look for his help tonight. Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to rest in the joy of what thou art. We confess how easily we are distracted. Like moths to a light, we are drawn to all sorts of glittering things in the world. But we pray for eyes to see our Lord Jesus sparkle above all the bright and glittering things in the world. May our hearts be drawn out after him. Oh, how, how the world needs to see us as so taken up with him. How they need to understand the wonder of who he is and what he has done. God, I pray, help us. Help us in this congregation. Make us better in our love for thee and finding joy in all that Christ is and what he has done. If there be any here tonight without him, lost and on the way to a lost sinner's hell, we pray for their souls. We ask, Lord, that there would be a strange ability for them to pay attention to the word tonight, and they would hear from thee that they might be saved. Save, O oh God, we pray. Move in all our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've indicated in recent weeks, we have reached the apex, in a certain sense, of Christ's ministry in Galilee, the region in which he grew up, a place where he was familiar to many. To help communicate the significance of the miracle that's before us, we have a remarkable fact, and that is that it is found in all four Gospels. And that might not sound strange to you until you realize that the only other miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to the apex of his ministry, as we come to the crescendo of his labor in Galilee, we have also a miracle that the Spirit of God has seen fit, not only to record and cause us to marvel at the extent of it, but also to record it in every single gospel so that we would see the significance of it in terms of its place in the labor and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. To think of him feeding all these people is hard for us to comprehend. Did all the gospel writers lie? Did Jesus have a stash of food hidden in some cave in the wilderness that he produced for the event? Or did this really happen? The rationalistic mind has to conjure up a scenario almost amazing as the miracle itself in order to dismiss what is recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on that day. It is amazing. And part of our problem is we are so familiar with this passage, we've been told it for so many years, it has been put before us in so many different times and places that we have read it tonight and we haven't perhaps been amazed afresh at what is recorded for us here in these verses. I hope tonight to be able to help you understand just the amazing 
event that took place. It's known as the feeding of the 5,000 because there were 5,000 men. We have that recorded for us here by Luke. But in Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, we are told that there was the addition of women and children. And so men have tried to think up what size was the crowd, how large was it that day. And if you have 5,000 men and in addition women and children, all sorts of ideas have been proffered and put forth. But I think easily you could have three or four times as many people as are numbered. So you have a crowd of about 15,000, 20,000, maybe even more, assembled that day in a wilderness, and Jesus takes the loaves and the fish, and He feeds every last one of them until they're full. It is perhaps the greatest miracle in terms of scope recorded in the Gospels. The number of people that witnessed it, who were privy to it, who received the benefit of it. And so at the apex then of Christ's ministry in Galilee comes this unforgettable miracle. And yet it's not just a miracle. It is a miracle, of course, but it's, it's also a test. It is a test. After a year and a half or thereabouts of, of moving around Galilee and moving in these regions, the question remains, will Israel believe in their Messiah? And so, as he brings us all to a head, he puts before them this quite remarkable miracle, and it comes before them then, as I say, as a test. Will you really believe? The initial response is positive. We'll see that later on. The crowd becomes convinced that not only is he a prophet, which is some of what we've already dealt with recently, which prophet is he? Is he Elijah, is he John the Baptist, raised from the dead? Is he, is he, who is he? One of the old prophets? Who, who is this one who's among us? But what we find as a result of this miracle is that they begin to turn their eyes to a particular prophecy that was given by Moses. And they start to think, no, no, this is the prophet that Moses said should come. One like unto Moses. And so, as we read all the record that's given to us, and we will get to it at some point tonight in John chapter 6, we will learn that our Lord Jesus Christ is looked to, as a result of this miracle, as someone not just who is a Messiah, but a Messiah really based upon their own terms. One that they are looking to, to meet their particular needs, not the needs that He has actually come to meet. There is a sense in which they begin to look to Him for, for health care, if you like. He's the one who can heal all of our physical ailments. And then also welfare, as He, as he meets all their practical needs and feeds them. Again, there's this idea, well, well He's the one that we want to elevate. And really, as they, as they try to, in the language of John 6, as we'll see, as they try to, by force, make Him a king, really what you have uh, in the multitude is a desire for a, a coup d'etat. That they want to take Jesus Christ, they want to, and this is part really playing on in what we've been dealing with, Herod feeling the threat, Herod wondering who he is, Herod eventually coming to the determination that he wants to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is going on because there's a swelling movement of who is the Lord Jesus, and as a result of this miracle, there is this swelling desire, let's take him and make him king. 
And what a wonderful king he will be. How he's healed all of our relatives. How he's provided on this occasion enough to feed thousands and thousands of people. This is the king that we need. But amidst all of this, we'll find that the people feel the test. They feel the test. And it's a grief to see it unfold. So tonight, as we consider these verses, we look at them with this heading, the preeminent supplier of all man's needs. The preeminent supplier of all man's needs. And I want you to note with me that Christ proves that He is preeminent in His care for His people. He proves in these verses that He is preeminent in His care for His people. Now, look again at the verse that we began to read in this passage, verse 10. The apostles, when they were returned, told Him all that they had done. And He took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So, you remember the background of this. The disciples have been sent out. The twelve have been sent on their first mission. And this is a mission for them to be proved in terms of their, their ability to take all that they had learned over the last year or so and then apply it to, for themselves in ministry. And so they're sent to the cities and to the towns to preach the kingdom of God and to heal all manner of sickness, even to raise the dead. And this is an amazing mission that they go on, and they all then come back. And that's what Luke is referring to in verse 10. The apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And I want us to think about that in terms of His care for His people, how Christ is preeminent and how He cares for His people. First of all, seeing that He enjoys hearing from them. He enjoys hearing from them. There's a real sense in which if people will not listen to us, we learn that they don't really care for us. It is the listening ear that so often we look for. It is to know that someone will actually sit down and take the time of day to listen to what we have to say. And our Lord Jesus shows here His willingness to sit down and hear everything that they want to report. Now, is He, is he ignorant of all that has gone on? No. <laughs> he knows all that's gone on. He knows all the details. He knows everything that's happened. He's aware of all of that. And yet He patiently sits and listens to them reporting in their excitement at what they had witnessed and what they had seen accomplished. And I thought that a remarkable uh, indication of His care, that our Lord cares. And we understand as well that it is important for us to be, to be always listening to people, willing to listen to people. You know those kind of individuals that when you enter into conversation with them, and they, when you're talking, it, it seems as if they're just waiting for you to stop so that they can, they can say their little piece. They're not actually listening to what you say. And you can kind of see that kind of glazed over look in their eyes as they kind of look for that moment where they can put in what it is that they want to say. And that kind of person doesn't really minister to us in the way that we need when we need someone just to listen to us. We want them to hear what we have to say. And this is what, again, is even more amazing about the Lord Jesus Christ, is that when we're dealing with people and we're talking to people, most of the time... They don't know what's on our hearts, and they don't, and, and likewise, we don't know what's on their hearts, and so there, there's a sense in which a, a willing exchange should take place. But with the Lord Jesus, He knows, and with His care for His people, they are come to Him to tell Him all that they had done. This encourages us when it comes to the place of prayer. 
Sometimes people say, well, what's the point in praying if the Lord knows everything that's going on? Why should I pray? Well, it's no different to hear this passage. The Lord knew everything they were going to say. He knew it all. He knew it in better detail and greater insight than the disciples themselves. And yet he sits and he listens. He welcomes it. He invites their reporting to him of what's on their hearts. And I I thought about just the simple application, the simple reality of our Lord inviting his people to communicate with him, to tell tell him what's on their hearts, to communicate the burden of their souls, to come to him when they're excited, to come to him when they're grieved, to report all that is on their hearts, all that has happened in their lives. To come before the Lord at the end of the day and talk to the Lord about the day. This is the application that we have here in this simple little detail. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. They reported. So I wonder, beloved, I wonder, are you in the habit of telling the Lord about your day, of reporting to the Lord what's going on in your life, of rehearsing to him the details, the the concerns as well as the joys of what's going on in your life? That's a simple application here. And so many of us drift through our experience and we don't have this kind of deep, intimate fellowship with Christ where we know He's literally there waiting for us to pray, to talk to Him, to tell Him of all of our concerns. Instead, we carry on with our joys sometimes, as is the case here, as well as with our burdens. And so we're exhorted, cast your care upon him, for he careth for you. Cast your care on him. It's no good for you to sit there with your cares, but you are to cast your care. And that, in a sense, is the example that is before us here. He enjoys hearing from them. There we see the care of our Lord Jesus. But also he encourages rest for them. He encourages rest for them. And we're told, and he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. A desert place. Now, it doesn't tell us why he took them here, but Mark's gospel does. Mark chapter 6, verse 31, where the record is of his words, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. The Lord encourages rest. He sees them. Now, they've been busy. Busy, busy, busy. They've been running into the towns, into the cities, And it's not just all the preaching. It's not all of that. I mean, there's been a lot of preaching, a lot of healing. Hundreds of people have gathered around them as they went out in pairs to minister as the Lord had appointed. But but, but again, just think about it. They They had to go into a town and find a place to stay, which meant that they were staying in someone else's home, which meant, as you well know, usually... That when you stay with someone, that means when you get back to their place, you can't just, like, go to bed. You have to sit and talk and talk about the day and share what's going on in their lives and your life. And and then it goes on into the little hours. And I imagine it was no different in their time, just as in our time. So, So they have all this labor and they labor all day and they heal and they preach and they engage in ministry. And then they come back to this home where someone has kindly opened up their home to them. And then they have to engage in conversation as they're fed and all the rest of it. And then they just, they're exhausted. And then they're up, excited, first thing in the morning, and off they go again to minister all day. And that's the way it has been for, I don't know how long, but I imagine some considerable 
space of time where they have been ministering. So they come back, they're all excited, they're on a high, but, but physically, physically he discerns they're exhausted and they need rest. It's like Elijah and his ministry. And he reaches again this, this great high on Mount Carmel after all that had led up to it. And, and he has this experience of seeing the, the mighty outpouring of, of God in terms of the fire upon the altar and the prophets of Baal slain and all the rest that happened on that occasion. But it's not long after that that he learns how physically exhausted he is. And with that exhaustion came a desire just to quit. So the Lord doesn't want to bring his people to that point, the point where they're so exhausted they want to give up. So he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. He took them to this little obscure place in the region of Galilee to rest. So he encourages rest for them. Their needs that we have, beloved even for our physical frame and for our minds. We need rest. And don't think that it's some expression of great piety when you just burn yourself out. Know your limitations. Understand your responsibilities. And realize that there are seasons for intense labor and there are seasons for rest. The Scripture says we can bear our yoke in our, our youth. There is certainly a time in which if we're going to bear more of the load, best we do that when we're young rather than when we're old. But even at the same time, no matter how old or young we are, we need rest. Some of these are, these are young men, strong, capable, and yet the Lord sees their need for rest. So he's proving that he is preeminent in his care for his people. He enjoys hearing from them. He encourages rest for them. And then also he enlarges faith for them. He enlarges faith for them. Verse 11, And the people, when they knew it, followed him, and he received them, and spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that had need of healing. We'll come back to that. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve, and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about, and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. But he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people." We learn from John 6 that the Lord has in mind, and we talked a moment ago about a test for Israel, but in this there's also a test for his people. He uses this event as a teaching tool for his disciples. So in John 6 verse 5 we read, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now take a step back. The disciples had spent some weeks or whatever length of time engaging in ministry, performing many miracles equivalent to the miracles of our Lord. And there may have been, there may have been the possibility that they started to imagine in their foolish little minds that they had, quote-unquote, arrived. We have performed everything we have seen the Lord do, almost. We, we've been healing sick people, raising dead people, seeing all these amazing things transpire at our hand. We, we've arrived. We know everything that we need to know. We're, we're ready. 
But the Lord wants to enlarge their faith. So they see the multitude and the day wear away, and their solution is, send the multitude away. That's what they say, isn't it? Verse 12, the middle of the verse, send the multitude away. So as they have ministered and they have been used to for the past number of weeks of, of, of leading and taking the lead role in ministry, now they come back to the Lord Jesus, and now again they're doing what actually wasn't all that uncommon. They're telling Him what He should do or what should be done. This is all too familiar in the events relating to the disciples. Send them away. And in one sense, it seemed reasonable. You have these thousands of people gathered. The day is starting to wear away, and the thought is, well, they need to be going somewhere to meet their physical needs, to get their provisions and so on. But when you read that language, verse 12, send the multitude away, I want you to just pause over what they're actually doing. They are instructing the Lord. They are telling the Master what needs to be done. As I say, they do this on other occasions. The woman of Cana, they say the same thing. Send her away. Those who brought their children to him tried to send them away. And again, you have them giving commands, send the multitude away. Now just pause there for a moment. They are meant to be subject to him, but now they're coming and saying, here's what should be done. At the very least, you would imagine if they're keeping all things in their mind in terms of who he is and who they are, they might come, Lord, do you not think that it might be time for them to find a place for themselves or go and get food for themselves to, to make a suggestion? Even that, even in that, there's almost too much of an of a, of a elevated sense of, of self but they don't even do that. They just come with this command, send the multitude away. Here is what should be done. And here we see the folly of them, how much they still had to learn. We are told in Proverbs verse five, chapter 1, verse 5, a wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. We often think the wise man is the man who gives instruction, but the Bible teaches that the wise man, certainly it's more easy to discern the wise man, not by what he teaches, but by how he listens. You want to discern someone's wise? Look at how they listen. Don't, don't, don't think about, oh, he has so much to, to share. He has so much wise counsel to, to give. Now, certainly a wise man can teach. I'm not saying a wise man should stay silent when he has something to impart. But if you want to see wisdom... The easier and more reliable test is not in the amount of information a man can impart, but in how he listens to information imparted to him. Well, these disciples should have been wiser and should have been listening. Instead, they're giving counsel where it is not needed. You think of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14, where we're told, With whom took he counsel and who instructed him? and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. Who, who is took, with whom has he took counsel? The Lord doesn't need the counsel of men. He doesn't need to be instructed by men. He doesn't need to be taught the path of judgment or knowledge, or showed the way of understanding. And yet, this is what they're doing. Send the multitude away. Of course, if they had just paused for a moment... 
and rehearsed in their minds the records that we find in the Old Testament, they may have just thought, you know, the Lord might do something here. Did they not know that the Lord had provided for Israel in the wilderness for 40 years? Or how he provided for Elijah by the brook and commanded ravens to feed him? Or how he provided when he stayed with the widow at Zarephath? Or how the Lord provided for a hundred men in Elisha's ministry? But you, you see those, those records in Scripture and you think, well, that's all in the past. It's not going to happen again. And so they dismiss it. Again, they're just, they're just running to a conclusion, send the multitude away. And what the Lord is going to do, He is going to enlarge their faith. All these passages in Scripture, all the history where the Lord had provided miraculously in the past didn't come into their minds Certainly, they didn't think for a moment that Jesus could do this now or would do it now. So the Lord is testing them. He is testing them, and He is enlarging their faith. He is helping them to see. And I tell you, beloved, He continues to do that to this day. As you walk through your Christian experience, you're going to get to times and seasons where you think that you really know the Lord, and you know how powerful He is, and you think of, of what He's capable of doing and all the rest of it. And then, and then he shows you afresh. No, you don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of it. And there are various ways he does this. He might take material things away from us. And then we realize, actually, I really believe God can provide because we begin to panic. We begin to worry. We begin to wonder what's going to happen. And he again, he, he shows through those events, through those experiences that, that he is still the same God that He provides, that He provides for those in the wilderness. He provides when there's nothing apparently to, to give to people, and He brings it out of nothing and, and meets the needs of His people. Now, I hope the young people learn that. Young people, you're going to need to learn that, perhaps even more so than some of the older people, because the chances are you're going to have seasons early on in your life where it's going to be tough. And maybe you can get to a point of adulthood and you, you wonder, is there going to be a job for me? Maybe you go through college and at the end of it, is there a job for me? And you go through seasons, you go through times and periods and hardship where you wonder, can the Lord provide? And the disciples were incapable of seeing how the Lord would provide, and they just resorted back to some pragmatic approach, send the multitude away. And when the Lord is testing you, when He's teaching you, don't respond pragmatically. Don't just immediately run to the easiest way, the easiest option to solve the problem. Get before the Lord, and instead of telling Him what needs to be done, ask Him. Ask Him, Lord, what am I to do here? You come like Hezekiah, you learn like Hezekiah to, to spread the matter out before the Lord. You learn like David to come and inquire of the Lord. Should we do this? What am I to do here? And that's not what the disciples did. They failed. They failed. Again, I don't know. It may be because of the context. They've, they've been having this great time of ministry and they've been leading themselves. The Lord has been absent from them in that way. They're just going out on their own and ministering and they're seeing the same miracles done that He performed. And now they come back and they just slip into this, this habit that they have, which is, Here's what to do, Lord. 
And he's going to expand their faith. He's going to show them. And in fact, we'll find out later, I mean, he shows them again when he feeds the 4,000. And it's, it's like they never learned. They didn't learn from the first miracle. And how often we're just like them. So, Christ proves that he is preeminent in his care for his people. He cares for us. He cares for us by means of the fact that he wants to hear from us. He encourages rest for us. And he enlarges faith for us as well. He wants to expand our faith by bringing us through trials so that we learn to trust in him. But secondly, Christ proves that he is preeminent in his compassion for the multitude. He proves that he is preeminent in his compassion for the multitude. Look at verse 11. And the people, when they knew it, followed him, and he received them, and spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that had need of healing. Note first, his compassion extends to their spiritual needs. His compassion extends to their spiritual needs. He spake unto them of the kingdom of God. Mark records in Mark 6 verse 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and they began to teach them many things. Luke says he taught about the kingdom of God, spake unto them of the kingdom of God. Mark says he began to teach them many things. Think of that. This multitude gather around them. There are so many needs reflected in all of their lives. And yet, I have to say to you, and I need to point this out to you, that the most compassionate thing Jesus did was he taught them the word. We immediately go to the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and certainly there are things for us to learn there, and we will get to that. But I begin with his compassion extending to their spiritual needs because this is how it is recorded. He spake unto them of the kingdom of God, or as Mark says, he taught them many things. He began to teach them many things. Many things. Not a short little 15-minute sermon, but many things. In fact, he teaches long enough that by the time he's done, the disciples are saying, hey, <laughs> they're going to be hungry now, and they need to go and get food. Send the multitude away. I guess that's why sometimes we have our, our meals after the service, because the preaching goes on long enough that you need a meal after the service. Well, the Lord did the same. He preached long enough that by the time he was done teaching them many things, they need something to eat. And what we have recorded here, it is a warning to us of the distinction between how the Lord works and His primary concern in contrast with the world. This whole miracle, and I hope you don't miss it tonight, this whole miracle is really to instruct them in spiritual matters. It's not about giving them a meal. That's not the point. What's one meal? What's the point in that? There is spiritual significance in what He is doing. And if you miss that, you miss the point of the whole thing. And so when it tells us that he spake unto them of the kingdom of God, or as Mark says, he taught them many things, it is, is for us to take note of that and recognize a distinction between that activity and what the world would want us to do. How does our world work? If you feed the hungry, 
when you house the homeless, they will give you all the accolades that you could ever ask for. If you happen to be British and you give yourself for an extended season of time or many years and do something significant, Her Majesty the Queen will bestow upon you an OBE. If you do something even more significant, again, more charitable work, there's been some that have done charitable work and they will knight them because of their charitable activity, because of their practical meeting of the needs of men and women and boys and girls. And I'm not disparaging that. I'm not saying that that's nothing. But I want you to get this. I want you to understand that one gospel meal is worth more than three square meals every single day for a lifetime. One. One dining at the feet of Christ to see him presented before you as the Savior of sinners. Having that once in your life is more significant than if someone fed you three square meals every day for your entire lifetime. And yet I wonder if we believe it. Even Even as a church, it is easy for us to focus in on the practical and miss how important spiritual is. And it's very easy to note, actually. You're not long in the ministry before you see it. Now, this isn't criticizing anyone, by the way. Not at all. I have seen this right across the world. So it's not, it's not unique to here or anywhere else. But it illustrates my point. Ask someone to come and preach. Anyone. He comes and preaches. Say there's 100 people there to hear him preach. And there's a meal afterwards for those 100 people. If I was a betting man, and I'm not, but I was, I can almost guarantee you that more people will express appreciation for the person who puts on the meal than for the one who brought them the word. I have seen it everywhere. Who put on the dinner tonight? Who put out all this food? They want to know who did it so they can go and say, thank you so much. And I'm all for that. I'm not saying that that's not... You should go and show appreciation. But you can almost guarantee that more people will will inquire as to who did this so I can thank them than for the person who actually brought them the Word of God. And I think that shows our carnal disposition, the way we by nature relate to the Word of God. We don't value it the way we ought And many of us are guilty of this, even not being conscious of it. It's not like we would say, put two before me, you'd say, of course the Word of God is more important. But we don't actually embrace it. We are so familiar with it that we don't recognize the mercy that it is to have the Word of God. And so these multitudes 
of people stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, he teaches them many things. And this is far more significant than just the meaning that they are to receive. His compassion extends to their spiritual needs. This is fundamentally the burden of our Lord, to have Him put before men. Not what He can do, but Him. None of us want to be appreciated just because of something we can do. We want to be appreciated for who we are. And certainly it can be no different with the Lord Himself. He is the bread of heaven. He is the one that satisfies the soul. He is the one provided for sinners. And when He is broken up, when His Word is read, when it is expounded, when someone comes and gives you the Word of God, you have the greatest gift that can ever be put before sinners. This is why Paul's exhortation to Timothy He is not telling him not to remember the poor because we have exhortations clearly in Scripture that call us to remember the poor and so on. But, but Timothy, Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Give yourself to this work. Don't be misguided. Don't be sidetracked. Don't be distracted. Give yourself to the Word. It is by the giving of the Word that Christ is set forth and souls feast on the one meal that can make the difference not just for time but for eternity. So Christ's compassion extends to their spiritual needs. He spake unto them the kingdom of the kingdom of God. But also His compassion extends to their emergency needs, their emergency needs verse 11, and healed them that had need of healing. I'm not going to get into this in any detail. We have looked at the healing of the Lord uh, in recent weeks, but here you have it again. He's just doing the same thing again. He sees these people in their emergencies. They're coming with this emergency. Master, help. Help my daughter. Help my son. Help my spouse. Help me. Help. Help. The cries for help. The wails that he would have become accustomed to out there in the wilderness. And all the cries of men and women, and perhaps as the day begins to, to break and then the night begins to come, there, there are those that are panicking because they haven't yet brought their need before the Lord. And, and the Lord, He healed them that had need of healing, every one of them. The Lord does not turn a blind eye to the emergency needs of men. There are times, and we have heard the stories of those who don't even know the Lord coming to Him with a cry of emergency, Lord, help, Lord, save, Lord, deliver. And you wonder, does the Lord hear them? If they're not converted, does He hear them? I think scripturally at times we, we have warrant to say that, yes, He does. He actually hears the emergency cry of someone at times that doesn't even know Him. That the goodness of God should lead them to repentance. But note also, His compassion extends to their daily needs. Not only their emergency needs, but their daily needs. Verse 13, He said unto them, Give ye them to eat. 
This is a reflection of God's common grace. Every moment of every day, God says this to his world. He says, give ye them to eat. Every moment. Think of how many meals that are received by all the inhabitants of the world. I know there are seasons of, of famine, famines of judgment that God brings, and certainly there are areas of the world that mismanage their resources and bring great suffering upon their people. But generally, most of the world receives the blessing of God's divine command that men may eat. Give ye them to eat. So he says to his creator order, give ye them to eat. And so the ground brings forth food. Psalm 145 verse 16, Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. He opens his hand. Give ye them to eat. So Genesis 1.30, I have given every green herb for meat. Or Genesis 9.3, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. So our Lord here expresses a command that is constantly going out to the world. It's constantly. If he, if he stops giving this command, we starve. He opens his hand and we eat. If he doesn't, we starve. Now, see, you don't eat because you work and you go to the store and you buy, and that's not why you. That's not why you eat. If that was the way, if that was how we eat, then why on earth were we taught to pray, "Give us this day our daily bread"? The only reason we eat is because God opens his hand in bounty and in mercy to the multitudes of men and women in the world. And so he's doing the very same here. His compassion extends to their daily needs. It's a reflection of his common grace. And here they are, the end of verse 12, they're in a desert place. Don't have in mind that this is some kind of sandy desert that's barren. It's not actually. It's just an isolated place. Mark tells us that they sat down on the grass. And this is roughly springtime, so, so things are flourishing and things look beautiful. In fact, it's perhaps a, a wonderfully serene image that we have as the multitude begins to take their place across the hills by the lake. And so as he engages upon this need that they have, Again, read in verse 13, they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, which we learn from John, that this was given to them by a boy. Except we should go and buy meat for all this people. We, we have nothing unless we go and buy. But they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down by fifties in a company. There are 5,000 men. It may be that they take 50 heads of the home, and they're all grouped together, so it's not like groups of 
exactly 50 people, but 50 households. And so you have 100 households spread across, divided up in this fashion. And the Lord's going to take care of them. These five loaves and two fish are going to be used by him. And that brings us then to consider our third point, that Christ proves that he is preeminent in his characteristics as Savior of the world. He proves that he is preeminent in his characteristics as Savior of the world. I don't want to focus just on the practice. You can see it for yourself. He feeds these, the multitude. But I want us to see something more. I want us to see something about the Lord in what is taught to us in this passage. And note first that we can trust Christ as Savior because here he demonstrates the power of divine creation. We can trust Christ as Savior because here he demonstrates the power of divine creation. Look at verse 16. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He prayed for blessing. He gave thanks, really, as a sense of the word. This was common. This is not unusual practice. This is what they did. Looking up to heaven, looking to the source, teaching men and women from whence our food comes. And he blesses them and break and give to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. Mark's record of this in Mark 6.41 says, And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And it seems that, that what happens here is simply as he receives the loaves and the fish and as the disciples are sent to, to, to organize the groups and then to distribute the food, that as the Lord is breaking it, it is being created out of nothing as he breaks it for distribution. So as he stands there and he breaks the bread and he breaks the fish up, it is, it is, it is being produced out of nothing in his hands. I don't know what that means in terms of, of the influence that has on, on the mass of the world and the energy of the world. And he, but he's bringing extra mass into the world. That's what it seems to be. This wasn't there. He's, he's taking it and he's just breaking it as a reflection of what it is their need. But, but what is happening is that food is coming out of nowhere. In his hand, he's just producing it out of nothing. And he keeps doing that until all the 15, 20, 25,000 people, whatever number they are, are full. That's what we're told in verse 17. They did eat and were all filled. Filled. Not just, well, it was suffice in terms of, it's very kind of you to share that with us, but, uh, but we, this little bit will, will, will do. No, they were, they were stuffed. They were filled to the gills, as it were. They had all that they needed. And as they moved around, the disciples went, and there's, there's fragments, there's, there's leftover. Twelve baskets. Twelve baskets are left over. This is so wonderful. And I was thinking about it. I wonder, I wonder if as he broke the fish and the bread, I wonder, I wonder if it was like his first miracle when he turned the water into wine and it was recorded that the wine he made was better than all the other wine that they had drunk so far. I wonder if the fish tasted better than the bread. I don't know. I can't tell you. No one remarks on it here. But he is breaking this and he is feeding them. And I just, can, you, can you imagine? Can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine the whispers of the people as they begin to realize what is going on here? And the disciples keep going back to him to receive more and then going to them. And they talk, where's this coming from? Where's it coming from? 
how is this going on? And they're thinking about it, and they're considering it, and, and it, it just it flutters through the entire multitude that he is making food out of nothing. He's just making the meal as he stands there before them all, and the disciples distribute it to the multitude. This is how the Lord can provide. He is the Creator. He is the omnipotent God. He demonstrates here the power of divine creation. He is showing to you that He has all power, that there is no limits to His power. And so in that power, He exercises it particularly to express how He desires to fulfill the needs of men. He sees their need. And He is using His omnipotence not for His own ends, but for sinners. This illustrates familiar passages to us. Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have a shepherd who has all power to provide all of my needs. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But the main point is this. You can trust Christ as Savior. You need to see him as the Savior who is providing for the needs of men. And he can meet your need because as he expresses here, as he evidences here, he is God, the creator of all things. So who do you look to to save you? Who's going to deal with your sin? If it's not Jesus Christ, it's someone inferior. Because there's no one more superior than he is. So you can trust him. You can trust him. You can come to Jesus Christ knowing that this is the one who made, who made food out of nothing. That the miracle performed that day was just as remarkable as what happened in the beginning of creation. Let there be light. And there was light. Also, we can trust Christ as Savior because here he demonstrates the extent of divine provision. The extent of divine provision. They did eat and were all filled. And there was taken up of fragments that remained to them twelve baskets. Everyone eats until full, and there's enough left over to meet the precise need of the apostles. Twelve baskets. Small little baskets. Not large baskets, but baskets that would be sufficient to meet them at their need. Think about it. This in itself, the leftovers... Although I don't know how it all worked out, but there's a sense in which the precision of the leftovers is almost as remarkable as the miracle itself. How much food do you have left over when you make Thanksgiving meal? How hard is it to precisely determine exactly the amount of food you need for 100 people? Never mind 15,000, 20,000, maybe more. He stands there making and making and making and making and it keeps going and going and going. 
And whenever they go around at the last to check after everyone's eaten, and they so is there anything left over? And the disciples move around the little groups of fifties, and they start picking up what's left. Of, here, here, we, we've we've eaten everything. We <laughs> we can't eat anymore. Here, take this. And they they gather all up, and they gather all up, and twelve baskets. What's he teaching them? I'll meet all your needs. I know exactly what you need. But more than that, spiritually, I think there's something going on here. In terms, and I'm not dogmatic on this, but in terms of the precision with which we see this executed, it is showing the sufficiency of Christ's work to meet the needs of all who will ever trust in him. That you can't in any way come to Christ. It can never be the charge. You can come to the Lord and say, is there still room for me? And wonder if you will receive a welcome. Well, the blood of Jesus Christ that's cleansed away all those other people's sins, will they cleanse away my sin? Is it sufficient? Does it extend to me and my need? Yes, that's the answer. That it doesn't matter how many come. We're going to learn at the last that the atonement of Christ was sufficient for all who will come. How did the people respond? Turn quickly to John chapter 6. I just want to turn you there and see what was recorded for us in this chapter. So we have the account that's given in the early part of the chapter of the feeding of the 5,000. Let's read from verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Now if you have a margin, you'll see there a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15. That's the prophecy. A prophet who will come that is like unto Moses. Isn't it remarkable amidst all the discussion about who Jesus Christ is that they had considered Elijah, John, but they had never once thought Moses? And I wonder, I wonder if the reason for that is, well, Moses is just too up here. He's, he's too elevated. But maybe there had been some discussion, maybe there had been some talk, and now it gets confirmed some were hesitant. You can't, you can't put them on a level playing field with Moses. That's, that's, that's too high. No man's where Moses is. But now they begin to see. No, maybe he is. After seeing all of this, this is of the truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When they saw the miracle, when they saw the feeding of the thousands and thousands of people, Verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. This is the point. They want to make him king. They want to maybe force a kind of coup and get the Lord in control here. But this is, as we find out, this is all carnal. Verse 22, the day following when the people stood on the other side 
of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereunto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And again it looks very promising here. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles... And that had been what they had, if you go back to verse 2, you'll see that. A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. So that's the initial motivation. They're seeing the miracles. Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So before you were seeking me for the practical emergency needs of, of healing and so on, now, now you have another motive. So I say to you, there's like two aspects of welfare. There's the, there's the health care and there's the welfare. There's the one who can heal all our bodily ailments and there's the one who's going to provide food for us. And so the Lord says, verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth. You've put so much effort in. You've traveled miles to find me. You keep moving around trying to find where I am. You're laboring, laboring hard just to come. And why are you coming? Why are you trying so hard to get near to me? It's because you labor for meat which perishes. Don't do that. But labor for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do, that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. That's it. This is what God asks of you. Just believe on the one that he has sent. They said, therefore, unto him, look at this, verse 30. This is unbelievable. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Are you serious? You just saw me feed 15, 20, 25,000 people and you know it because you traveled all this way to come and see it. And now you're asking for a sign. In other words, they're saying, they're saying, do it again. That there's no real intent. There's no real desire to get to the bottom of what it is that Jesus offers. They're there for carnal reasons only. And they're basically saying, the way you fed us at lunch or dinner time yesterday, we've come here again. Show us, show us another miracle. We missed breakfast this morning. Come. Give us our breakfast. What sign showest thou then? You could hardly believe what you're reading. All the miracles that drove them to follow him in the first place, the feeding of the multitude, and they're asking for another sign. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna, and ah, now we're getting to the bottom of it. See, Moses, Moses, if you're really like that prophet like unto Moses, Moses provided for Israel every day for 40 years. It was in his leadership that they were in the wilderness and had all their needs met every day for 40 years. Come on. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're goading him. We'll not really believe what you claim to be 
who you claim to be until you provide for us every day. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. You think it came from Moses? But my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Whatever this means, it sounds good, we'll, we'll take it. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. You won't believe. You refuse to believe. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which he hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They murmured. Is this not the son of Joseph? And here is the point. They missed the point. They didn't get it. And it would be the same today if the Lord came into this world and was performing these miracles and doing all of this that we read of and and he has been doing for a year and a half or so in Galilee, all of this, this is all, this is all mounting up. As I say, this is a test. This is a test. And will Israel believe? Will they turn to their Messiah? We are learning. No, no, they will not. Months of healing the sick and causing the dead to raise to life and giving sight to the blind all leading up to this huge monumental miracle where thousands are fed out of nothing. And they come, shows a sign, prove it. Show that you're the one Moses spoke of by, by feeding us every day in the wilderness. And this is the carnality of man. It's about what he can get out of God. It's all carnal. It's all about them. I fear, I fear the judgment day for such people who come to God on their own terms, who take Jesus Christ simply because they believe that in some way he might aid them or help them prosper in this life. But they have no love for him. And they have no recognition of their sins. I wonder if such people are here tonight. I wonder is there anyone here it's just like those of our Lord's day. That you hear, you hear him teach you, put the word of God before you. The truth is there and he is beckoning, come to me. I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never hunger. If you come to me, you'll never hunger. Stop with all the nonsense of the world. Stop with all the other things that you think will satisfy. Stop it. Stop. Stop seeking after things other than Christ. What is it that you want? 
What is it that you desire? I am here that you will never hunger and never thirst. I'm here. Take me. Take me. I offer myself freely. Just take me. And you say no. I say to you, You're just as bad as Israel. The multitudes are all going to turn and leave him at this point. I, I struggle, I struggle. I really struggle to imagine that someone can sit and hear the gospel put before them repeatedly in a simple fashion. A call to believe in Jesus Christ and turn from sin. And instead you choose you choose not to. You choose to live life on your own terms. If Jesus Christ came to you and promised you all these things in life, career, wealth, spouse, family, then you might be more drawn to him. You don't get it. You don't even begin to get it. Jesus Christ is here to satisfy what no one else can satisfy. There is no lottery where you can gamble and possibly win the forgiveness of sins. Christ freely offers himself to sinners to deal with the deepest need they have, to wash away their sins, reconcile them to God. Forever satisfy them. May the Lord help you. Let's bow together in prayer. there's anything I can do for you if the Lord has spoken to your heart and you have concerns about your soul, about where you're going whether to God's heaven or God's hell be sure to talk to me I'll be glad to open the word of God with you but even right where you are the Lord will hear your cry just call upon him Lord, we're thankful that him that cometh to thee, you'll never cast out. I pray that there may be some who just take that simple step of faith and come to thee this night. Our hearts grieve. We we read these passages 
We wish it was something that was isolated in history. We wish it could never possibly ever be replicated. And yet, it is replicated all the time. God of mercy on the hard-hearted unbeliever that may be here tonight. Open their blinded eyes. Have mercy upon their never-dying souls. We plead with thee. Bless us all as we speak and fellowship with each other and be with those that go downstairs. Bless the food that has been provided for those who go there. And take us all to our homes with thy word abiding in our hearts and the fear of the Lord keeping us in our ways. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.